Luke chapter 8. That's where we are, okay? Luke chapter 8. And uh, we are moving through uh, this gospel written by a medical doctor. Can you believe it? A medical doctor who became the great historian of the Bible. The great historian. He tells us in chapter 1 that he's the one that went and uh, did a historical account of Jesus' life. He's a Gentile, not a Jew, who's writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he wrote two books. He wrote Luke and Luke 2. Well, there is no Luke 2, except for you call it Acts. Okay? And it's really interesting in Acts because Luke, the doctor here, about halfway through the book of Acts, goes from, uh, uh, you know, they and them, and he starts saying I and we, which leads most scholars to believe that Luke then was, uh, began to travel on some of the missionary journeys about halfway through the book of Acts. So he was there for the building of the early church as well. And he wanted to write an account that would show us the universe, universality, I don't know, the great scope of uh, the gospel. It's this, it's that the gospel isn't for any one section of society, it's for all of society. Uh, the poor and the rich. Uh, I don't know if you listened to the song that we sang. Sometimes in good moral society, uh, suburb, suburbia where most of us live, we think of people as being vile and not vile. But the Bible tells us that we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. You know, your gossip can be really vile. It doesn't just have to be the nasty things you see on the news. Gossip is vile. It destroys people. Bitterness uh, against people, vile. Unforgiveness, vile. And so this is the gospel for all of us. And praise the Lord, right? In fact, last time, right at the beginning of the chapter, it's so beautiful, isn't it? After chapter 7, in which we find out some of the people who Jesus picked, the 12, uh, to have him take on a three-year journey of discipleship, it also tells us about the ladies who ministered to the Lord. And one of the ladies is a, a girl named Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene, by all accounts, was somebody that the good people, quote-unquote, would consider vile. I mean, she had seven demons delivered. Uh, she was delivered, excuse me, from seven demons. She, many people say, although it doesn't say in the Bible, many historians say, extra-biblical sources, uh, and this creeps into the teaching a lot, that she was a prostitute. Well, the Lord uh, can minister to prostitutes just as well as he can to the bankers, right? Right. And here in chapter 8, it says that Mary Magdalene was ministering to the Lord right beside Joanna, the wife of Chusa, which was Herod's steward or Herod's financial planner. In other words, Joanna was rich. She was part of that segment of society that people would say, oh, nice, nice family. And she ministered. When, 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 when the Lord got a hold of her heart and she surrendered her life to the Lord, look at this, side by side, shoulder to shoulder with Mary Magdalene. We're all equal in Christ. So beautiful. And what I want you to know about chapter 8, if you're sitting here and you think, well, what does this have to do with Christmas? Uh, you know, you're supposed to be doing Christmas uh, sermons, uh, all that sort of thing. Well, it, this has everything to do with 
Christmas. Because Jesus Christ came as a baby to reconcile us back to the Father so that we'll live with him forever. And the way in which that's accessed, his grace, catch it, it's by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the way in which we access all that, has God, uh, all that God has for us as he's uh, poured out his grace upon us is through faith. What's faith? Trust, belief, dependence. I'm old enough to remember the Nestle Plunge. Back when I was a kid, there was this commercial where this, on this hot day, a guy had been, you know, working around the yard, all this sort of thing, and took a drink of uh, nest tea, iced tea, and fell back into the pool. And that was the commercial. And every time I think of trust and dependence and faith, I think of that commercial because that's what we're doing. We're giving our life up and just laying back into the arms of Christ and saying, Lord, I'm counting on you for everything. I trust you. That's faith. And what happens here in this chapter as we see who uh, Jesus is uh, picked now and those who are ministering to him, in this chapter, we uh, have lessons on faith. In fact, last time I said to you, this is a, a chapter about testing, but I ran out of time and I couldn't show you the testing part. You probably were scratching your head like, what's he talking about? And this is a chapter about faith. And if you search the scriptures, listen to this. You say, well, how do I get faith? I mean, sometimes I don't have much faith, and I'm saying that about myself. Well, how do you get faith? See, because in Hebrews 11.6, it says, without faith, well, Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Keep going in that. We only just quote that. For he who comes to God, catch this, must believe that he is, and that he, God, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We open up our hearts to the Lord. We don't know it all, but we just open up our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, uh, I recognize without faith, trust, dependence, it's impossible to please you. So I want to be a faithful, trusting person. And then I say, well, okay, I want to be, but how does it come about? <laughs> well, Romans 10, 17 says this. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hearing by the word of God. Folks, there's a whole segment of church people that know nothing of the word of God. Nothing of the word of God. And James tells us if we're just hearers and not doers, we can't just hear it, folks. Not only do we have a segment of the church that doesn't know anything about the Word of God, but we have a second segment of the church that knows everything about the Word of God but doesn't do anything with it. In other, we're like big gluttons in the American church. We come and we consume. You know, we listen to 17 Bible pastors during the week. We have our notebooks out. We love the Word. And then we sit at home and we don't help anybody. Why do we think the church is inept? Why do we think that there's evil? Because the church hasn't been out doing its job, which is what Jesus is telling us here in this chapter. Oh, by the way, let me give you 1 Peter 1.7. Listen, 
Don't you want to have true faith, genuine faith? Catch this. 1 Peter 1.7 that says that the genuineness of your faith be, look at this, it's much more precious than gold <laughs> that perishes. In other words, Peter is telling you right here, whatever you do in life, whatever you do, make sure you have faith. It's better than gold or houses or cars or whatever, because though your faith is tested by fire, may it, when it, you get on the other side, I just put that in there, listen to this, may your faith, may my faith, may our faith be found to, here it comes, praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is your life a shout to the world that Jesus is king? Is my life a shout to the world that Jesus is king? Or is my life stand for sports or music or career? None of those things bad in of themselves. But when people think of me, do they think of the Lord Jesus Christ as being king and sovereign? Folks, just so you know, there's one unpardonable sin, right? What, what did uh, uh, Jesus come to do? Well, look with me. I'm, I'm giving us a lesson on faith before we begin. What did Jesus come to do? We're supposed to have faith. Okay, faith in what? Faith in who? Faith in what? Well, if you turn to the fifth chapter of the book of John, Jesus just gives it to you. He just gives it to you right out. 524. Turn there. I want you to see it. John chapter 5, verse 24. What are we to have faith in? You know those signs for Christmas, believe? I laugh at that every time I see it. Okay, believe in what? Believe in myself? That's what the world will tell you. Believe in Christmas traditions? Believe in the spirit of Christmas? What do I believe in? I'm to have faith. It's how I access this whole life. I'm to have faith. I just read you the scriptures. But what am I to have faith in? In other words, but, but really, who am I to have faith in? Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he, look at this, who hears my word, remember, it's through the word that faith is developed or germinate or even born. He who believe, or hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Don't you, don't we, don't us, don't we want to just base our whole life on John chapter 5, verse 24? We're counting on you, Lord, for everything. Lord, I can come to you. I can be reconciled to you by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, I'm going to be with you forever. I am prone to roam. I am prone to wander. But it's not about how great my faith is. It's about the, the, the object behind my faith. And the object behind my faith is you, Lord, who sent your son, Jesus Christ. Now, listen, before I did that, I, I started to tell you, what's the unpardonable sin? Well, in Matthew 12, 31, it tells us that there's this thing called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy. There's only one unpardonable sin, and you don't want to do it. And I don't want to do it. And I don't want any of you to do it. I don't want to be there. And the one unpardonable sin, there's only one sin that the Lord can't forgive, and that's this, if you reject his gospel. He's saying, everybody, come on, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, the Lord is telling us, he's not, of course. We're all sinners, and we need a 
a sacrifice to be paid for our sin. And when a sacrifice, you, you count on his sacrifice for your salvation and his resurrection for your new life, look at this. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to reside in our life now. Thus, the re- blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the gospel. You get it? And if you're here today and you don't know whether you're going to heaven or not, you just have never examined those claims, I probably, inarticulately, but I did it, just gave you the gospel. And I want you, and we want you, to surrender your life to Jesus because Jesus says this in in Luke 8. Faith, he's telling us, is the currency of heaven. (laughs) It's how God operates through faith. It's the key that unlocks all things. It's the thing that unlocks salvation. It's the thing that unlocks blessing, not in some weird prosperity gospel way, but it's true. It's the way in which uh, you hold on to the promises. It's the way that you're not scared. It's the way that you're not lonely. It's the way that you're not anxious. It's all through faith, but not your faith, yet it is your faith. It's the faith in him. It's real subtle. If you go on Christian TV, much of Christian TV tells you, have faith in your faith. That's wrong. I don't have faith in my faith. My faith wanders. I have faith in God because of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. That's why we have faith. God is so wonderful and perfect. And the more we get to know him, the more we uh, are, uh, can deal with life, of course, first and foremost, our sins are forgiven and we have peace with God. Okay, now having said all that, last week I went through the parable of the sower. Of course, Jesus would tell you the parable of the sower when he's talking about faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So he wants people to know that there are certain conditions for the soil of the heart that need to be present for his word to come in and germinate and grow. Listen to this. 1 Peter 1.23 again, of uh, Peter again. 1 Peter 1.23, having been born again. Listen, how do you get born again? Not of, in, or excuse me, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. And what is incorruptible? He tells you right here, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. You and I, we must know the gospel that has been planted by the word of God in great soil for it to germinate and grow and come into a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Everybody catching that? And so, of course, when Jesus is going to do a chapter on faith, what's he going to talk about? He's going to talk about the seed. And he tells us in verse 11 of chapter 8 that the seed is the word of God. That's what happens. The seed is the word of God. And he talks about that. Now, I did this. I did uh, chapter 8, 1 through 8, and then I did 11 through 15. I skipped 9 and 10. Let me read it to you of chapter 8. Then his disciples asked him after he gave the parable of the sower, saying, what does this parable mean? Of course. You know, you're, you're, can you imagine showing up for class? You're sitting outside. I mean, here's Jesus right here. Day one, class one, you got your notebooks open, and Jesus goes, okay, here's what we're going to start with. There are four conditions of the heart. 
One condition just falls by the wayside and trampled down, birds devour it. Some goes on to the rock and it springs up, it's not withered away. Some comes among thorns and the thorns spring up and choke it out. But others fall on good ground, spring up, yield a crop hundredfold. He who has ears, let him hear. You're going, I showed up for this? What is this? Of course, what would we do? We'd say, well, what does that mean? And Jesus gives it to them. He gives it to them. The seed is the word of God. The wayside or the paths where all the world walks. Don't be on that path because the, word, the seed hits your heart in that sense and it just doesn't grow at all. He says, but the ones on rock, verse 13, are those who when they hear receive the word with joy, but these, I want you to catch it, have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. God's after something bigger and better for us, isn't he? 14, now the ones that fell among thorns are those when they have heard go out and are choked with cares, the cares of life, the riches of life, or the pressures of life, and then bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fall on good ground are those having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it. Look at, look at this and bear fruit with patience. Just one little side note before I move on. Here's what happens to people a lot in the church. Okay, I came to Bible study 16 times in a row. God didn't fix my situation, I'm out. (laughs) Happens a lot. But what we just said in the opening here, listen, the Lord (laughs) doesn't say he'll cover over the sunshine from beating on you. (laughs) He says the antidote (laughs) for the circumstances of life, the hot circumstances, the circumstances that are touchy and, and hot and make you sweat, is to grow your roots deeper, not cover yourself up. Here's what we pray. Get me out of this situation. You know what Jesus is saying? Go deeper. And do it, listen, listen, with patience. Because a farmer plants in a certain season, but it takes several seasons for these things to come to fruition, right? They don't just grow up in a week. Okay, so we went through that last week. And here, I want you to know that Jesus said the purpose purpose of uh, uh, the parables was to his disciples when they asked, what does this parable mean? In verse 10, he said to them, to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest, it is given in parables that he, he quotes Isaiah now, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. But go over to verse 16. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. Now, he's giving a teaching on faith. You understand this. And the Bible tells us that to those who are unbelievers who have not surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, their eyes are veiled. They don't understand. And to his followers, he's given us uh, uh, the ability or he gives us to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. What are the mysteries of the kingdom of God? The mystery is that Jesus Christ came out of the heavens as a baby. And he lived with us 
only to die for our sins, and then he died and rose again and ascended into heaven and sent his helper, the Holy Spirit, to live in our hearts until that such time that he comes back again to rule and reign on the earth. Those are the mysteries of God, but not everybody knows this. And to some who don't choose to see, they keep walking in this blindness. And it takes a move of God and a soil of the heart for eyes to be opened. To my Calvinistic friends, God is a perfect gentleman who is not going to force you to love him. Is it a work of God, salvation? Of course it is. Must we surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. And they're not mutually exclusive. And so he tells us these parables. These are given to you, but I want to take now a parable that these people might relate to. Like, like look, if we were sitting down as disciples and he gave us this parable of the sower, that might be one thing. But how about if he walked up to a farmer and gave the parable of the sower? What's he trying to do? He's laying down a truth a spiritual truth beside a world event or a world circumstance, and he's trying to, and he can do it, prick your heart with what you know. And that's what a parable is for. It's not uh, necessarily, you know, a systematic theology of all things God. Don't try to read everything into a parable. A parable is to have one truth or two truths, just a brief little thing to pierce somebody's heart to get them thinking about the Word of God and Jesus Himself. That's what it's for. And once it's sprouted in your heart, chapter, or excuse me, verse 16, 17, and 18 come into play. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ right now, if that's you, you want to listen up to this because there's a certain responsibility with being a Christian. Did you know this? And here's the responsibility. Here it comes. If you're a Christian and you have a lamp, you're the light of the world, and you're covering it up and not using that light, that's not the place you want to be. You want, when you go out into your place where the Lord has called you, legal place, medical place, uh, uh, places of business, uh, you're, you're, you're a person that's uh, the PTA uh, mom, uh, it doesn't matter. Wherever you're out, uh, in whatever, wherever God has put you, you want to take that lid off your life and to the light uh, that you've been given, the light of Jesus Christ would shine brightly to everybody in that place. See, but a lot of times, I, I even remember one time, I had a friend who was a, like an unbelievably unbelievable guitarist. I mean, unbelievable. And he wouldn't bring it into the church and play it for a lot of different reasons I won't go into. And I always think about that when I come across this. And by the way, I'm not pointing my finger at my friend. I got enough stuff in my life. But that just reminds me of that. Take the lid off. If you're great at the 
guitar, take the lid off the guitar and use it for the Lord. If you're great at law, take the lid off and be great at law. If you're great at uh, uh, whatever, working in uh, administration, be the greatest administrator you could be as unto the Lord, wherever it is. Take the lid off. Don't hide your light. That's a responsibility that we have, but only in the power and resource of Jesus Christ. Where has God put you? Be a light there. Has God put you in college? Be a light there. Has he put you in high school? Be a light there. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. God himself is going to put everything right. Truth is meant to be revealed. Truth is meant to be revealed. Don't be shy about talking to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be shy. Why? Because the chief and greatest need of all people is the forgiveness of their sins. And millions and millions and millions and millions of people are walking around the earth and they don't even know it. They are unsettled. There's things in their heart that's unsettled. They don't, they don't know why they're unsettled. Ecclesiastes tells us this. And, and the reason is, is because they're desiring, even unbeknownst to them, a relationship with their good and heavenly father, but they need their sins to be forgiven so that they can come back to the Lord. Truth must be revealed. When you're giving out toys at the Christmas store, Okay, you're saying, well, none of the toys have the gospel on it. Really? Tell them it's in the name of Jesus Christ. This is why we're doing this. You're welcome to come and get toys, but I want you to know we're only doing it because Jesus loves us and he loves you. And he wants to save you from your sins. Do it. You don't have to be weird about it. Just be loving about it. Just do it. And I need to do it. Nothing is secret. Truth is meant to be revealed. Therefore, take heed how you hear. Isn't that weird? As I'm reading this, I'm like going, well, wait a minute. Shouldn't it say, take heed how you speak? <laughs> it's take heed how you hear. Listen, he wants you to take the word in so that the output is beautiful. Are you catching that? So when you come to church, I get it, folks. I get it. I'm telling you, nobody gets it more than me. I'm not even putting myself in a special category, but I get it. You're hurting and you're hurting and you have this and you have that and all these things are happening in your life. I get it. And sometimes you feel tired and you don't even want to come. I feel tired and don't want to come and I'm the pastor. It's just real. It's just life. That's just the way we're built. But here's the thing. Look at this. If you're coming here all the time, not, not sometimes. I mean, sometimes you're hurting, but you know, you know, you just want to come just to consume. Blah. You're not getting it. The Lord says, prepare your heart. Start on Saturday. Start on Friday. Prepare your heart for the first day of the week to receive what the Lord would have for you. But then not only to just receive it, but to do it. Ask him to give you the grace and the strength to go out and do it. How do we hear? We hear attentively with tender hearts. Here's what we got a lot of people doing. Hearing with rigid hearts. So if you don't uh, 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 agree with me on this political issue or that political issue or a mask or not a mask, if you don't agree with me, I'm out of here. Hmm. Jesus wouldn't do that. 
How do we hear? It's important how we hear because how we hear is what comes out of our life. When we hear the right things and the good things and the truth, not that I'm great at that, but I'm just saying when you hear the word of God and it's expanded and you think about it and you chew on it and you meditate on it and then you go out and you say, Lord, I need so much help to do this. There's this person that I really don't like, but you say I need to love them. So, Lord, I'm going to need your resource and strength to go up and to continue to be nice to them because I don't want to be fake or phony, and yet I don't want to uh, 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 be disobedient to you, Lord. So I need your strength. I need your love to go love this person. See, that's hearing the right way. You're listening to the Sermon on the Mount. You're recognizing that you need the Lord. Take here to he, take. Here, for whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever doesn't have, even what he seems to have, will be taken away from him. Man, you, you understand the responsibility we have as Christians? You know, in sports, you know what they say, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And I hate to use that analogy because I don't want you to think this is works-based. It's not. It's all grace-based. But the Lord says, as I give you uh, my grace and ask you to go and just do it, and you continue to refuse to do it, that's a really a dangerous place to be. The danger is there's no growth, there's no output, there's no life, there's no fruit. We miss opportunities because we uh, don't walk in the Holy Spirit in His boldness and we say yes while we're in here, but we say no while we're out there. The Lord says whoever doesn't have even what He seems to have will be taken from Him. There's a responsibility for us to live in revealed truth. You get that? As you're ministering with a cup of soup, as you're patching up somebody's face when they're hurting and mending, and they ask you, Why is, what is all this for? It's because the Lord Jesus Christ has sent me. Well, he goes on and you think, well, why? this is a curious place to put mother and brother information. It says here in verse 19, Then his mother and brothers came to him and couldn't approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mothers and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. By the way, the brothers, the siblings, they didn't really believe in him. Not really. They didn't believe in him as the Messiah until the resurrection. And secondarily, just for my friends who are Catholic, Mary wasn't a perpetual virgin. Hey, that's interesting. <laughs> Mary wasn't a perpetual virgin. She had other brothers and sisters. Or he had other brothers and sisters. You get that? She needed salvation too. But that's really not the point of this story. Verse 21, but he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. There's this kinship between people who know the Lord Jesus Christ in a real and saving way. And the kinship is the life of Christ lives in them. So that when we come together, we're all different here. I don't see many that do the same thing I do. You, but you, I don't see many that do the same thing anyone does here, except for maybe students or whatever. And when we all come together, though, we have something to, in common. We have the life of Christ in our hearts. So that makes me, uh, you know, when prior 
<laughs> to my Christian life, just saying it, just got to be honest. You know, prior to my life in Christ, <laughs> I just got to say it. I know it sounds icky, but I just got to be real. If you couldn't do anything for me, I didn't hang out with you. That's just the way I was. That's what was in my heart. I would smile and say, how you doing, and be very polite to you. But all the time I'm thinking, what can that person do for me? Isn't that sick? But now that the Lord has come into my heart, it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, who I am, what we are. We're just coming together and loving people uh, as, a, as, a, as a body. We love each other and we love people, and it doesn't matter what side of the offense you're on. It doesn't matter. And that Jesus tells us here, yes, there are relations. We have blood relations. But there's this kinship, this bond between people who love the Word of God and do it, not just love it. Do it. There's, you can, think about how close it is you come to the Lord when you actually say amen to his promises. When you say, Lord, I'll go out in the world with your help and do what you've asked me to do by your power and spirit here, Lord, I'll do it. When you do that, look at this, you come close to the Lord. He draws near to you. So near, he says, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Catch it, this is all about the Word of God, how instrumental it is in the faith, uh, uh, the faith walk that you have. Well, he goes on, and he says, now it happened on a certain day that he got into a, boat, uh, into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, well, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. That's the most important, that, that's the important scripture. You need to mark that. Let us cross over. He says, we're going to make it. We'll be over there. He didn't say, we might be over there, or if something happens, we hope to be over there. Let's cross over to the other side. We'll be there. A promise of God. Okay. So he gets in there, and he says to them, let us cross over, and they launch out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. Mark it very well, folks. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. That's very important. He's the only one ever qualified to bring man and God together because he was fully God and fully man. Here you see his humanity. He was tired. Aren't you happy that Jesus was tired? I am because I get tired. Do you get tired? Do you get tempted? He was tempted in all things, yet never sinned. Aren't you happy that he can identify with us? That's such a wonderful doctrine. He was hungry. He was a person of hunger. He loved, he cried for his friend when his friend died. And the family, he could relate to us. And here he is, he's sleeping in the boat, and a windstorm comes up because on that lake, they come up very quickly. It's well documented. And they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And that we means, listen, not just the disciples, the disciples and Jesus. That's what the disciples said. We're all perishing. <laughs> and then he arose and he rebuked the wind. By the way, it's the same word rebuke for the wind that he rebuked a demon, or a demon in chapter 4, verse 35. So some believe that this wind was whipped up by the enemy of our souls. 
It was raging and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, what did he say? How could you be so scared? Why are you so anxious? No, he said, where is your faith? Now, I think he said it probably differently than most pastors, including me, emphasize. I say it with some disdain. (laughs) Come on, man, where's your faith? I don't think he said it that way personally. But he's interested in them that they start to develop faith because he knows they're in for tough times. He knows that they're going to be rain that comes on the just and the unjust. In fact, you know in the story of Jonah, right? The storm is sent because Jonah is disobedient. Here, a storm arises and there's no evidence that anybody's being disobedient. I mean, you think about that. If you live in life, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, it doesn't matter. Storms are coming, folks. He said in this world there will be tribulation. There's going to be tribulation. By the way, one of the next stories will tell it to us. So he says this. He says, let's cross over. He arose, rebukes the wind. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled. Why do you think they were marveling? Well, why don't you just do this and turn over to Psalm 89? Psalm 89. Just so you know it and you see it. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 89, verse 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, verse 8, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. Here it comes. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. In other words, even though they had failed the test in some ways, they had failed the test, they recognized in a deeper way who Jesus is. Jesus is God himself. The Psalms talked about it. The Psalms said that the one who can still the seas is God himself, and that's Jesus. So what does this story teach you? I mean, it teaches you a lot of things. And one of the things that it teaches you is, is when you're fearful, bring your fear to the Lord. Don't exclude the Lord, because the Lord can calm any sea. He can calm a financial sea. He can calm a, uh, a family sea that's raging. He can calm any circumstance, but the point is, make sure you're in the boat with Jesus, relying upon him. Make sure you're in the boat. Remember this. Let me me just give you a few of his promises that you could take out of the scriptures right now. We need these things. Here's a couple of his promises. Everything works together for good to those who love me. Romans 8.28. Now think about that. Do you believe the Bible? Raise your hand if you believe the Bible. Oh, absolutely. Okay, good. Okay. What happens when uh, somebody gets sick and you can't understand it? 
what do you say? What happens when you get sick and you can't understand it? What do you say? What happens when the, Lord, uh, the boss comes in and said, you're out of here, dude, and you can't understand it? What happens uh, when you studied like crazy and the, the teacher was bad and, gave you, and he gave you a C when you know you deserve the day? What, do you still say everything works together for good to those who love the Lord? Do you say that? Or do you say, oh my goodness, what are you doing, Lord? <laughs> How about this promise? I will complete that which I've begun in you. That's in Philippians 1.6. Jesus Christ will complete whatever he's doing in your heart. Do you get that? He's not stopping. You ever had a contractor come to your house? Frustrating, isn't it? Oh, wait a minute. Count everything good. Okay, good. Frust- you know, the, the contractor comes and he says, yeah, I'm going to start on you know, Monday and you're loving it. Oh, great, Monday. But what he fails to tell you is he's got like 16 other jobs, right? And uh, he comes Monday and then about Tuesday at 11, you're like, what? where is the guy? And he might not be back for three or four weeks and, you know, your TV room or whatever is half done and you're like, what in the world? Isn't that frustrating? Okay, here's the deal with Jesus. Whatever he begins, he's going to finish. It's coming to pass. Whatever he's doing in your heart, he is going to finish. He is going to finish. He's taking you. He's molding your faith. He's, by the way, in Romans 8, 29... He tells us the reason he's working out everything for good is he's conforming you to the image of his son. He's making each of us more Christ-like. Don't you need to be Christ-like? You ever worked with somebody that's annoying? Yes, you need to be Christ-like, or at least I do. Okay, so here it is. He's got all these different promises. He He's going to finish what he starts. He's going, he, he, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Here's another one that I love to hold on to. I hear a lot of people say, oh, man, I wasted my life and I didn't come to the Lord until I was 50 or whatever, 60, 70. I just wasted my life. But the Lord tells us in Joel that he will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. There's enough grace even for you and I when we waste time. You get that? He can even override that. That's a promise from the Lord. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Haven't I promised to supply all your needs, Philippians 4? And if you seek me, everything, everything will be added unto you. That's something to jump about, folks. Eh, All right. Maybe not. It is. It's something to jump about. Okay, so then they go to the Sea of the Gadarenes, or to the country of the Gadarenes. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's Gentile territory, uh, but it also is where the tribe of Gad uh, set up shop. And he goes out, and there's this man who meets him. By the way, in another gospel, it says it's two men. Is that a contradiction in the Bible? I don't think so. One would be enough for me. And here Luke just says, this one guy, man, he has no clothes on, nor do he live in the house, but he lived in the tombs. That's always what the enemy, this Satan, wants to happen for you. You catching that? He wants to strip you of your clothes. You say, wait a minute, what do you mean? Well, you could talk about pornography maybe, and that would be one thing, but how about this from a spiritual sense? You all, we all need the right clothes to go to heaven. And that's the clothes of righteousness. He doesn't even want you to find it out or even to know it. 
And so he wants you to be a naked person, and he wants you to live in the cemetery where death resides. He doesn't want you to get near the house of God with the righteousness of God. That's where the devil will take you. So, folks, the devil now, listen, he's real. He's real. Whether you want to believe it or not, he's real. And here's what the devil's out for, to destroy you to kill you spiritually, and if he isn't successful killing you spiritually, to kill everything about your testimony so that you won't spread it around. So you got to watch it. It says be sober, be vigilant. He's like a roaring lion ready to pounce. And he is. And here he took off the clothes and he didn't live in a house but in the tombs, this guy does. And when he saw Jesus, look at this, he cried out, fell down before him and with a loud voice said, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I want you to catch something because it's in James. Even the devils, even the demons know that he's the son of God. But that's not faith. You can't just walk around the church and say, oh, I I just got to warn you about this, folks. It's not just knowing that he's the son of God. That's not faith. A lot of people in America say, well, I go to church. That's not faith. I give money. That's not faith. I serve on committees. Not faith. It's surrendering all that you are to all that he is and making him Lord and Savior of your life. That's faith. And trusting faith goes out. It ventures out and does what he asks. He says, you're the son of the uh, most high God. I beg you, don't torment me because he knows Jesus has authority over him. They're not equals. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. That's really fascinating. We aren't going to go in it, but I want you to think about this. Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the spirit. This guy is driven into the wilderness by a demon. When we get in dry places, we can be driven by the Spirit or be driven by demons. You know one way we can tell you're being, we're being driven by demons? When we complain. What am I doing in the wilderness, Lord? How could you have me? I got so much to offer. Why am I in the wilderness? Why am I dry? Well, he often takes his people into the wilderness. What did Jesus do in the wilderness? Here it comes again. It's the same theme. He quoted the word of God in the wilderness, and he prevailed. And so will you if you keep the word. Don't worry if you're in the wilderness. That's a place that we all go to. Well, Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? This is a fascinating play on the customs of the day. The exorcists of the day, the people who would exorcise demons, thought that if you knew the name of the demon, you had a better chance of getting him out of a person. Catch it? So Jesus, who's just amazing, he says, well, what's your name? But he knows the answer. Look, the answer comes back, legion. That's not a name. You see what the enemy is trying to do? He's playing into it, so he doesn't tell him a name. He said, Legion. In other words, you don't, I'm not giving you my name, but I'm telling you how mighty we are because a legion in the Roman army was 6,000 people. Now, do I believe this guy had 6,000 demons? I mean, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there were many. And the demon's playing games, and he's not really telling them the name. And Jesus says, no problem. No problem. 
because many demons had entered him, and they begged him that he wouldn't command them to go out into the abyss, the, that, that place reserved for punishment. You can read about it in Revelation 9. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountains, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them, and then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place in the lake and drowned. Why did Jesus do that? Well, if he put them in the abyss, nobody would see the impact that a demon would have in the world. He puts them in the swine so that you and I will always know that's horrific. The demons take them and jump them off a cliff and kill them all, right? That's what the enemy wants for you and for me. Well, when those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus. Don't, isn't that what we do when we're saved by grace? We sit at the feet of Jesus, man. What a great place to be, just sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Look, clothed and in his right mind. There's clarity now. And they were afraid. They also... Uh, who had seen it told them by what means he had been demon-possessed, was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But G look at this. That's, that's amazing. If I was the leader, I'd be like, yeah, come on, man, we'll get bigger numbers. Yes, we can put it on Facebook, and more people think we're doing great. He says, no, 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 no. What's important is go to your own house. Start where you've been planted and tell what great things God has done for you. Folks, you don't have to be a theologian to share the gospel. Just tell what God has done for you. Just do that. You don't have to know this and that, and the, you read seven books of systematic theology. If you want to study that, do it, do it. But, but you don't have to do that. Just tell what God has done for you. Here is what he's just doing. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for them. Here he did what Jesus asked. You get that? It's in line with the theme of this entire chapter. What is the Lord asking you to do today? What is it? It could be a million different things. What is the Lord asking me to do here today? The Lord's saying, with my help, just do it. Don't do any excuses. So, verse 40, when Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting. And behold, there was a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. So what would he be? He'd be rich and powerful. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, I want you to catch something. Here you got rich guy, the apple of his eye, born 12 years ago. Everything has been great in his life. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He's wealth, power, prestige. And then something brings him to his knees. The apple of his eye the light of his life is flaming out. So you have him. But on the other side, you have, as he went, the multitudes thronged him. I want you to catch that. There's multitude around him. 
And a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians, isn't that funny that Luke put that in there? He's a doctor. And couldn't be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood had stopped. Here you have a person, catch it, look, look. You have a person who for the last 12 years has been in misery. She has been ostracized from all of uh, society because she's been bleeding and it's made her ceremonially unclean under the old law. Ceremonially unclean. Catch that word. There's nothing morally wrong with her, but she's ceremonially unclean under the old law, which means she can't even participate in all the stuff that you would participate in, religious life, even social life. And some have suggested that maybe even uh, because of this, husband could divorce her. So she's all alone and she's in misery and it's been 12 years. Isn't it interesting? 12 years of wonderful things happening, 12 years of terrible things happening and it comes right to Jesus, both, both issues. Maybe that's happening in your life. The Bible says that the rain will fall on the just and the unjust. There's a tower that fell in the Gospels on people, and they said to Jesus, you know, did somebody in the family do something wrong and sin? And he's like, no, just we live in this fallen world. He didn't say it like that, but that's what they're saying. And sometimes bad things just happen. We reap what we sow sometimes, and tough things happen, right? And so the message here is this. Sometimes life is going great, and then bang something happens. And sometimes life is going what we would consider horrific, but there's hope. But the point here is when things are going what you would consider, I would consider great, keep loving the Lord. Keep studying his word. Be prepared for the day of tribulation. You get that? Be prepared for the day of tribulation because tribulation produces patience and all kinds of things. That's the testing of your faith in the book of James. God's doing something even in the midst of tribulation. God's doing something even in the uh, midst of, uh, of, of plenty. You, you catch it? Paul said, I want to live whether I have a ton of stuff or I have nothing. I want to live the same way. Fully ablaze for the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he's done for me. Okay, so watch what happens. She touches his garment. What, what's that all about? Well, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, you know this, right? On the tassels at the corner of their garment, they would weave a blue thread. You know this, right? And those, that blue thread was to remind them of the commandments of God. And she knew she was unclean. Catch this. She knew she was unclean and couldn't touch people or they, people, people couldn't touch them. So she just says, oh my goodness, and if I could just get close to Jesus and just get to the part of his word. You catching that? If I could just lay hold of his word. And immediately her flow of blood stopped and Jesus said, who touched me? Well, he knows. But when all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? How could we ever know who touched you? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she wasn't hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him the presence of all the people, the reason she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. He wasn't trying to embarrass her. 
He was trying to draw this out for everybody's sake. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Catch it, catch it. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Folks, I want you to see something. What made her well wasn't that the circumstances changed. They did change. What made her well wasn't the prayer cloth that you had to touch. Don't buy them. It's a sham. It's not the... Of course, some people use it to be a point of contact, but it's the faith and it's the person behind the faith. It's the object of the faith that makes the difference. Your faith in me, it's made you well, so go in peace. You're going to have a peaceful life now. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house. Can you imagine how the ruler of the synagogue must be feeling right now? Will you quit messing with her? My daughter's dead. He didn't say that, but man, that's how I'd be feeling. Saying to him, your daughter's dead, don't trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, look at the compassion. He answered him saying, hey, don't be afraid, only believe. Not not believe and just kind of figure it out in some weird way. Believe in me. And she's going to be made well. And when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, John, and the father and the mother of the girl. And all wept and mourned for her. But he said, don't weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Can you imagine if you were in that room? They were making fun of him. I think you can stand to be made fun of, folks. He knows when you get me made fun of. That's what the word is. He... They ridiculed him. The people who he's going to help here in two seconds are saying, you can't do it. And they scoff and they make fun. And he says, what? Oh, in that case, if you're going to make fun of me, I'm not paying attention to you. And they ridiculed him knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside. He took them by the hand and called saying, Little girl rise, and then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. Why do you think he did that? This is just a little side note. If you're doing ministry, don't hog it. (laughs) Find something for people to do. I know you're the best at it. I get it. And there's a certain way you want it done. Trust me, I get that. But don't hog the ministry. There's something therapeutic about being able to serve and to love, to just bring food out, to, to, to mend somebody, to just prop them up, to give them a, you know, a hug, to wash their face, whatever it is. Here he just says, give her something to eat. Of course, she needed something to eat, but, but it was a ministry. You catch that? Get people involved. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Okay. So I did a lot, but I want you to see faith. But here's the most important thing, hopefully, I'm going to say today. (laughs) When you go back and look at the lady who was bleeding for 12 years, I want you to know that there were tons of people around Jesus, but only one was saved. You get that? There are a lot of people that know about Jesus. They might even be followers. But they've never grabbed a hold of him. 
They, they've, they could have done it for years. But they've never felt that communion between their Lord and them. That thing that's desperate in their lives. To just reach out. And to just grab the hem of his robe. Just to be humble in that way and to be desperate in that way and to need him in that way. See, we have a lot of people, I think, who don't even recognize they need him. And so maybe they're followers. They come around a lot, but there's no life. There's no communion between him and them. And as we close the book on Luke chapter 8, my prayer is that each of us would be people who are desperate for Jesus. I mean desperate. Because he says that if you want grace in your life, you'll be a humble person. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but when I try to be humble, I, start, I automatically have excluded myself from humility. Like, oh boy, I'm a humble person. But when I recognize my need for Jesus Christ, minute by minute, day by day, if I could just cling to him today, on my knees, in front of a large group of people who aren't doing it, who think they're doing it, but just, oh, I need you so much, Jesus. Boom, power and strength. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I just pray for all of us as we move on out of here and go about our business today that we would recognize how deeply we need you, Lord. That as we read your word, the very words that you've given us about believing and surrendering and all the other things that you've told us, that we wouldn't just be passerbys walking on the path that everyone walks on, but that we would cry out to you and worship you and adore you, Lord. Lord, you tell us by these stories, when we surrender and grab onto you, it's when the beauty happens. And we love you and we thank you that you've loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.